The entrepreneurial myth. They intoxicate themselves with work so they won't see how they really are. Aldous Huxley. The e-myth is the myth of the entrepreneur. It runs deep in this country and rings of the heroic. Picture the typical entrepreneur and Herculean pictures come to mind, a man or woman standing alone, wind blown against the elements, bravely defying insurmountable odds, climbing sheer faces of treacherous rock, all to realize the dream of creating a business of one's own. The legend reeks of nobility, of lofty, extra-human efforts, of a prodigious commitment to larger-than-life ideals. Well, while there are such people, my experience tells me they are rare. Of the thousands of businesspeople I have had the opportunity to know and work with over the past two decades, few were real entrepreneurs when I met them. The vision was all but gone in most. The zest for the climb had turned into a terror of heights. The face of the rock had become something to cling to rather than to scale. Exhaustion was common, exhilaration rare. But hadn't all of them once been entrepreneurs? After all, they had started their own business. There must have been some dream that drove them to take such a risk. But, if so, where was the dream now? Why had it faded? Where was the entrepreneur who had started the business? The answer is simple, the entrepreneur had only existed for a moment. A fleeting second in time. And then it was gone. In most cases, forever. If the entrepreneur survived at all, it was only as a myth that grew out of a misunderstanding about who goes into business and why. A misunderstanding that has cost us dearly in this country, more than we can possibly imagine, in lost resources, lost opportunities, and wasted lives. That myth, that misunderstanding, I call the e-myth, the myth of the entrepreneur. And it finds its roots in this country in a romantic belief that small businesses are started by entrepreneurs, when, in fact, most are not. Then who does start small businesses in America? And why? The entrepreneurial seizure. To understand the e-myth and the misunderstanding at its core, let's take a closer look at the person who goes into business. Not after he goes into business, but before. For that matter, where were you before you started your business? And, if you're thinking about going into business, where are you now? Well, if you're like most of the people I've known, you were working for somebody else. What were you doing? Probably technical work, like almost everybody who goes into business. You were a carpenter, a mechanic, or a machinist. You were a bookkeeper or a poodle clipper, a drafts person or a hairdresser, a barber or a computer programmer, a doctor or a technical writer, a graphic artist or an accountant, an interior designer or a plumber or a salesperson. But whatever you were, you were doing technical work. And you were probably damn good at it. But you were doing it for somebody else. Then, one day, for no apparent reason, something happened. It might have been the weather, a birthday, or your child's graduation from high school. It might have been the paycheck you received on a Friday afternoon, or a sideways glance from the boss that just didn't sit right. It might have been a feeling that your boss didn't really appreciate your contribution to the success of his business. It could have been anything, it doesn't matter what. But one day, for apparently no reason, you were suddenly stricken with an entrepreneurial seizure. And from that day on your life was never to be the same. Inside your mind it sounded something like this, what am I doing this for? Why am I working for this guy? Hell, I know as much about this business as he does. If it weren't for me, he wouldn't have a business. Any dummy can run a business. I'm working for one. And the moment you paid attention to what you were saying and really took it to heart, your fate was sealed. The excitement of cutting the cord became your constant companion. The thought of independence followed you everywhere. The idea of being your own boss, doing your own thing, singing your own song, became obsessively irresistible. Once you were stricken with an entrepreneurial seizure, there was no relief. You couldn't get rid of it. You had to start your own business. 
The fatal assumption in the throes of your entrepreneurial seizure, you fell victim to the most disastrous assumption anyone can make about going into business. It is an assumption made by all technicians who go into business for themselves, one that charts the course of a business, from grand opening to liquidation, the moment it is made. That fatal assumption is, if you understand the technical work of a business, you understand a business that does that technical work. And the reason it's fatal is that it just isn't true. In fact, it's the root cause of most small business failures. The technical work of a business and a business that does that technical work are two totally different things. But the technician who starts a business fails to see this. To the technician suffering from an entrepreneurial seizure, a business is not a business but a place to go to work. So the carpenter, or the electrician, or the plumber becomes a contractor. The barber opens up a barber shop. The technical writer starts a technical writing business. The hairdresser starts a beauty salon. The engineer goes into the semiconductor business. The musician opens up a music store. All of them believing that by understanding the technical work of the business they are immediately and eminently qualified to run a business that does that kind of work. And it's simply not true. In fact, rather than being their greatest single asset, knowing the technical work of their business becomes their greatest single liability. For if the technician didn't know how to do the technical work of the business, he would have to learn how to get it done. He would be forced to learn how to make the business work, rather than to do the work himself. The real tragedy is that when the technician falls prey to the fatal assumption, the business that was supposed to free him from the limitations of working for somebody else actually enslaves him. Suddenly the job he knew how to do so well becomes one job he knows how to do plus a dozen others he doesn't know how to do at all. Because although the entrepreneurial seizure started the business, it's the technician who goes to work. And suddenly, an entrepreneurial dream turns into a technician's nightmare. See the young woman baking pies. See the young woman start a business baking pies. See the young woman become an old woman. I met Sarah after she had been in business for three years. She told me, they have been the longest three years of my life, Sarah's business was named all about pies, not its real name. But, in truth, Sarah's business wasn't really all about pies, it was really all about work. The work Sarah did. The work Sarah used to love to do more than anything else. Plus the work Sarah had never done in her life. In fact, Sarah said to me, not only do I hate to do all this, she spread her arms, taking in the small shop in which we stood, but I hate, she emphasized the word almost fiercely, I hate baking pies. I can't stand the thought of pies. I can't stand the smell of pies. I can't stand the sight of pies. And then she started crying. The sweet fresh aroma of pies filled the air. It was 7 a.m. and all about pies was to open in 30 minutes. But Sarah's mind was someplace else. It's 7 o'clock, she said, wiping her eyes with her apron, as though reading my mind. Do you realize I've been here since 3 o'clock this morning? And that I was up at 2 to get ready? And that by the time I get the pies ready, open for business, take care of my customers, clean up, close up, do the shopping. Reconcile the cash register, go to the bank, have dinner, and get the pies ready for tomorrow's bake, it'll be 9.30 or 10 o'clock tonight, and by the time I do all that, by the time any normal person, for God's sake, would say that the day was done, I will then also need to sit down and begin to figure out how I'm going to pay the rent next month. And all this, she spread her arms wearily again, as though to accentuate everything she had just said, because my very best friends told me I was crazy not to open a pie shop because I was so damn good at it. And, what's worse, I believed them. I saw a way out of the horrible job I used to have. I saw a way to get free, doing work I loved to do, and doing it all for me. She was on a tear that I didn't want to interrupt. 
I waited quietly to hear what she would say next. Instead, she kicked the huge black oven in front of her with her right foot. Damn, she exploded. Damn, damn, damn. For emphasis, she kicked the oven again. And then slumped, sighed deeply, and hugged herself, almost desperately. What do I do now, she said, almost in a whisper. Not really asking me, I knew, but asking herself. Sarah leaned against the wall and remained there quietly for a long moment, staring at her feet. The large clock on the wall ticked loudly in the empty shop. I could hear the cars driving by on the busy street in front of the shop as the city came awake. The sun shone harshly through the spotless windows, sweeping the gleaming oak floor in front of the counter. I could see the dust in the stream of light, hanging suspended as though waiting for Sarah to speak. She was deep in debt. She had spent everything she had, and more, to create this lovely little shop. The floors were the best oak. The ovens were the best ovens. The displays were charming, the very best money could buy. She had put her heart into this place, just as she had put her heart into her pies, falling in love with baking as a young girl, mentored by her aunt who had lived with her family while Sarah was growing up. Her aunt had filled her family's kitchen, Sarah's childhood, with the delicious, sweet aroma of freshly baked pies. Her aunt had introduced her to the magic of the process, the kneading of the dough, the cleaning of the oven, the sprinkling of the flour, the preparation of the trays, the careful cutting of the apples, the cherries, the rhubarb, the peaches. It was a labor of love. Her aunt had corrected her when, in her haste, Sarah had hurried the process. Her aunt had told her, time and time again, Sarah, dear, we have all the time in the world. Baking pies is not about getting done. It's about baking pies. And Sarah thought she understood her. But now Sarah knew that baking pies was about getting done. Baking pies was ruined for her. At least she thought it was. The clock continued its emphatic ticking. I watched as Sarah seemed to shrink even closer to herself. I knew how oppressive it must be for her to find herself so deeply in debt, to feel so helpless in the face of it. Where was her aunt now? Who was going to teach her what to do next? Sarah, I said as carefully as I could. It's time to learn all about pies all over again. The technician suffering from an entrepreneurial seizure takes the work he loves to do and turns it into a job. The work that was born out of love becomes a chore, among a welter of other less familiar and less pleasant chores. Rather than maintaining its specialness, representing the unique skill the technician possesses and upon which he started the business, the work becomes trivialized, something to get through in order to make room for everything else that must be done. I told Sarah that every technician suffering from an entrepreneurial seizure experiences exactly the same thing. First, exhilaration, second, terror, third, exhaustion, and, finally, despair. A terrible sense of loss, not only the loss of what was closest to them, their special relationship with their work, but the loss of purpose, the loss of self. Sarah looked at me with a sense of relief, as though she felt seen but not judged. You've got my number, she said. But what do I do now, you take this one step at a time. I answered, the technician isn't the only problem you've got to deal with here. The entrepreneur, the manager, and the technician. Thus, in the course of his life, one man acquires many personal qualities, many personages, many eyes, because each, speaking for itself independently of the others says, I, me, when it appears. Gene Vase, Toward Awakening. No, the technician isn't the only problem. The problem is more complicated than that. The problem is that everybody who goes into business is actually three people in one, the entrepreneur, the manager, and the technician. And the problem is compounded by the fact that while each of these personalities wants to be the boss, none of them wants to have a boss. So they start a business together in order to get rid of the boss. And the conflict begins. 
To show you how the problem manifests itself in all of us, let's examine the way our various internal personalities interact. Let's take a look at two personalities we're all familiar with, the fat guy and the skinny guy. Have you ever decided to go on a diet? You're sitting in front of the television set one Saturday afternoon, watching an athletic competition, awed by the athlete's stamina and dexterity. You're eating a sandwich, your second since you sat down to watch the event two hours before. You're feeling sluggish in the face of all the action on the screen when, suddenly, somebody wakes up in you and says, what are you doing? Look at yourself, you're fat. You're out of shape. Do something about it. It has happened to us all. Somebody wakes up inside us with a totally different picture of who we should be and what we should be doing. In this case, let's call him the skinny guy. Who's the skinny guy? He's the one who uses words like discipline, exercise, organization. The skinny guy is intolerant, self-righteous, a stickler for detail, a compulsive tyrant. The skinny guy abhors fat people. Can't stand sitting around. Needs to be on the move. Lives for action. The skinny guy has just taken over. Watch out, things are about to change. Before you know it, you're cleaning all the fattening foods out of the refrigerator. You're buying a new pair of running shoes, barbells, and sweats. Things are going to be different around here. You have a new lease on life. You plan your new physical regimen, up at 5, run 3 miles, cold shower at 6, a breakfast of wheat toast, black coffee, and half a grapefruit, then, ride your bicycle to work, home by 7, run another 2 miles, to bed at 10, the world's already a different place. And you actually pull it off. By Monday night, you've lost 2 pounds. You go to sleep dreaming of winning the Boston Marathon. Why not? The way things are going, it's only a matter of time. Tuesday night you get on the scale. Another pound gone. You're incredible. Gorgeous. A lean machine. On Wednesday, you really pour it on. You work out an extra hour in the morning, an extra half hour at night. You can't wait to get on the scale. You strip down to your bare skin, shivering in the bathroom, filled with expectation of what your scale is going to tell you. You step lightly onto it and look down. What you see is, nothing. You haven't lost an ounce. You're exactly the same as you were on Tuesday. Dejection creeps in. You begin to feel a slight twinge of resentment. After all that work. After all that sweat and effort. And then, nothing. It isn't fair. But you shrug it off. After all, tomorrow's another day. You go to bed, vowing to work harder on Thursday. But somehow something has changed. You don't know what's changed until Thursday morning. It's raining. The room is cold. Something feels different. What is it? For a minute or two you can't quite put your finger on it. And then you get it, somebody else is in your body. It's the fat guy. He's back. And he doesn't want to run. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even want to get out of bed. It's cold outside. Run? Are you kidding me? The fat guy doesn't want anything to do with it. The only exercise he might be interested in is eating. And all of a sudden you find yourself in front of the refrigerator, inside the refrigerator, all over the kitchen. Food is now your major interest. The marathon is gone, the lean machine is gone, the sweats and barbells and running shoes are gone. The fat guy is back. He's running the show again. It happens to all of us, time and time again. Because we've been deluded into thinking we're really one person. And so when the skinny guy decides to change things we actually believe that it's I who's making that decision. And when the fat guy wakes up and changes it all back again, we think it's I who's making that decision too. But it isn't I it's we. The skinny guy and the fat guy are two totally different personalities, with different needs, different interests, and different lifestyles. That's why they don't like each other. They each want totally different things. 
The problem is that when you're the skinny guy, you're totally consumed by his needs, his interests, his lifestyle. And then something happens, the scale disappoints you, the weather turns cold, somebody offers you a ham sandwich. At that moment, the fat guy, who's been waiting in the wings all this time, grabs your attention. Grabs control. You're him again. In other words, when you're the skinny guy you're always making promises for the fat guy to keep. And when you're the fat guy, you're always making promises for the skinny guy to keep. Is it any wonder we have such a tough time keeping our commitments to ourselves? It's not that we're indecisive or unreliable, it's that each and every one of us is a whole set of different personalities, each with his own interests and way of doing things. Asking any one of them to defer to any of the others is inviting a battle or even a full-scale war. Anyone who has ever experienced the conflict between the fat guy and the skinny guy and haven't we all, knows what I mean. You can't be both, one of them has to lose. And they both know it. Well, that's the kind of war going on inside the owner of every small business. But it's a three-way battle between the entrepreneur, the manager, and the technician. Unfortunately, it's a battle no one can win. Understanding the differences between them will quickly explain why. The entrepreneur the entrepreneurial personality turns the most trivial condition into an exceptional opportunity. The entrepreneur is the visionary in us. The dreamer. The energy behind every human activity. The imagination that sparks the fire of the future. The catalyst for change. The entrepreneur lives in the future, never in the past, rarely in the present. He's happiest when left free to construct images of what if and if when. In science, the entrepreneurial personality works in the most abstract and least pragmatic areas of particle physics, pure mathematics, and theoretical astronomy. In art, it thrives in the rarefied arena of the avant-garde. In business, the entrepreneur is the innovator, the grand strategist, the creator of new methods for penetrating or creating new markets, the world-bending giant, like Sears Roebuck, Henry Ford, Tom Watson of IBM, and Ray Kroc of McDonald's. The entrepreneur is our creative personality, always at its best dealing with the unknown, prodding the future, creating probabilities out of possibilities, engineering chaos into harmony. Every strong entrepreneurial personality has an extraordinary need for control. Living as he does in the visionary world of the future, he needs control of people and events in the present so that he can concentrate on his dreams. Given his need for change, the entrepreneur creates a great deal of havoc around him, which is predictably unsettling for those he enlists in his projects. As a result, he often finds himself rapidly outdistancing the others. The farther ahead he is, the greater the effort required to pull his cohorts along. This then becomes the entrepreneurial worldview, a world made up of both an overabundance of opportunities and dragging feet. The problem is, how can he pursue the opportunities without getting mired down by the feet? The way he usually chooses is to bully, harass, excoriate, flatter, cajole, scream, and finally, when all else fails, promise whatever he must to keep the project moving. To the entrepreneur, most people are problems that get in the way of the dream. The manager the managerial personality is pragmatic. Without the manager there would be no planning, no order, no predictability. The manager is the part of us that goes to Sears and buys stacking plastic boxes, takes them back to the garage, and systematically stores all the various sized nuts, bolts, and screws in their own carefully identified drawer. He then hangs all of the tools in impeccable order on the walls, lawn tools on one wall, carpentry tools on another, and, to be absolutely certain that order is not disturbed, paints a picture of each tool on the wall where it hangs. If the entrepreneur lives in the future, the manager lives in the past. Where the entrepreneur craves control, the manager craves order. Where the entrepreneur thrives on change, the manager compulsively clings to the status quo. 
Where the entrepreneur invariably sees the opportunity in events, the manager invariably sees the problems. The manager builds a house and then lives in it, forever. The entrepreneur builds a house and the instant it's done begins planning the next one. The manager creates neat, orderly rows of things. The entrepreneur creates the things the manager puts in rows. The manager is the one who runs after the entrepreneur to clean up the mess. Without the entrepreneur there would be no mess to clean up. Without the manager, there could be no business, no society. Without the entrepreneur, there would be no innovation. It is the tension between the entrepreneur's vision and the manager's pragmatism that creates the synthesis from which all great works are born. The technician the technician is the doer. If you want it done right, do it yourself, is the technician's credo. The technician loves to tinker. Things are to be taken apart and put back together again. Things aren't supposed to be dreamed about, they're supposed to be done. If the entrepreneur lives in the future and the manager lives in the past, the technician lives in the present. He loves the feel of things and the fact that things can get done. As long as the technician is working, he is happy, but only on one thing at a time. He knows that two things can't get done simultaneously, only a fool would try. So he works steadily and is happiest when he is in control of the workflow. As a result, the technician mistrusts those he works for, because they are always trying to get more work done than is either possible or necessary. To the technician, thinking is unproductive unless it's thinking about the work that needs to be done. As a result, he is suspicious of lofty ideas or abstractions. Thinking isn't work, it gets in the way of work. The technician isn't interested in ideas, he's interested in how to do it. To the technician, all ideas need to be reduced to methodology if they are to be of any value. And with good reason. The technician knows that if it weren't for him, the world would be in more trouble than it already is. Nothing would get done, but lots of people would be thinking about it. Put another way, while the entrepreneur dreams, the manager frets, and the technician ruminates. The technician is a resolute individualist, standing his ground, producing today's bread to eat at tonight's dinner. He is the backbone of every cultural tradition, but most importantly, of ours. If the technician didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. Everyone gets in the technician's way. The entrepreneur is always throwing a monkey wrench into his day with the creation of yet another, great new idea. On the other hand, the entrepreneur is always creating new and interesting work for the technician to do, thus establishing a potentially symbiotic relationship. Unfortunately, it rarely works out that way. Since most entrepreneurial ideas don't work in the real world, the technician's usual experience is one of frustration and annoyance at being interrupted in the course of doing what needs to be done to try something new that probably doesn't need to be done at all. The manager is also a problem to the technician because he is determined to impose order on the technician's work, to reduce him to a part of the system. But being a rugged individualist, the technician can't stand being treated that way. To the technician, the system is dehumanizing, cold, antiseptic, and impersonal. It violates his individuality. Work is what a person does. And to the degree that it's not, work becomes something foreign. To the manager, however, work is a system of results in which the technician is but a component part. To the manager, then, the technician becomes a problem to be managed. To the technician, the manager becomes a meddler to be avoided. To both of them, the entrepreneur is the one who got them into trouble in the first place. The fact of the matter is that we all have an entrepreneur, manager, and technician inside us. And if they were equally balanced, we'd be describing an incredibly competent individual. The entrepreneur would be free to forge ahead into new areas of interest, the manager would be solidifying the base of operations, and the technician would be doing the technical work. Each would derive satisfaction from the work he does best, serving the whole in the most productive way.
Unfortunately, our experience shows us that few people who go into business are blessed with such a balance. Instead, the typical small business owner is only 10% entrepreneur, 20% manager, and 70% technician. The entrepreneur wakes up with a vision. The manager screams, oh, no. And while the two of them are battling it out, the technician seizes the opportunity to go into business for himself. Not to pursue the entrepreneurial dream, however, but to finally wrest control of his work from the other two. To the technician it's a dream come true. The boss is dead. But to the business it's a disaster, because the wrong person is at the helm. The technician is in charge. Sarah looked a little overwhelmed. I don't understand, she said. How could I have done this differently? The only reason I went into this business was because I loved baking pies. If it hadn't been for that, what would have been the point? She watched my face suspiciously, as though I were trying to make her already impossible situation even more impossible. Well, let's think about it together. I answered. If it's true that within each business person there are three personalities, rather than just one, can you imagine what a mess that makes? If one of you wants this, and another of you wants that, and a third wants something entirely different, can you imagine the confusion that causes in our lives? And it's not only the personalities inside each one of us that confuse us but all the others we come into contact with as well, in our customers, in our employees, in our children, in our partners, in our parents, in our friends, in our spouses, in our lovers. If this is true, and all you need to do to discover whether it is or not is to take a look at yourself from day to day, as though from above, as though from outside of your skin, as though you were watching someone else, that is, to observe yourself as you go through the day, you would see the different parts come out. You would see them playing their respective games. You would see how they fight for their own space, and the space of all the others, and sabotage each other as best they can. In your business, you would see how one part of you craves a sense of order, while another part of you dreams about the future. You would see how another part of you can't stand being idle, and jumps in to bake, and to clean up, and to wait on customers, the part of you who feels guilty if she isn't doing something all the time. In short, you would see how the entrepreneur in you dreams and schemes, the manager in you is constantly attempting to keep things as they are, and the technician in you drives the other two crazy. You would see that it not only matters that your personalities are not in a balanced relationship with each other but that your life depends on gaining that balance. That until you do, it's a war. And it's a war no one can win. You would also see that one of your personalities is the strongest of the three, or four, or five, or six, and that she always manages to control the others. In fact, if you watch long enough, you'll begin to understand how devastating the tyranny of your strongest personality is to your life. And you'll see that without balance, without all three of these personalities being given the opportunity, the freedom, the nourishment they each need to grow, your business cannot help but mirror your own lopsidedness. So it is that an entrepreneurial business, without a manager to give it order and without a technician to put it to work, is doomed to suffer an early, and probably very dramatic, death. And that a manager-driven business, without an entrepreneur or a technician to play their absolutely critical roles, will put things into little grey boxes over and over again, only to realise too late that there's no reason for the things or the boxes she put them into. Such a business will die very neatly. And that in a technician-driven business, without the entrepreneur to lead her and the manager to supervise her, the technician will work until she drops, only to wake up the next morning to go to work even harder, and the next, and the next only to discover, long after it's too late, that while she was working someone moved a freeway through the store. Sarah looked at me with uncertainty. But, I'm not an entrepreneur, she said. All I do is bake pies. All I ever wanted to do was to bake pies, just like the technician you described. When entrepreneurial personalities were passed out, I think I got passed over. 
What do I do if there is no entrepreneur in me? I couldn't help but smile. This was going to be fun. Because I knew when Sarah finally got it, and I knew she would, she was going to discover someone in herself she never knew was there. Before we reach that conclusion, Sarah, let's look more closely at what an entrepreneur does. I responded. An entrepreneur does the work of envisioning the business as something apart from you, the owner. The work of asking all the right questions about why this business, as opposed to that business. Why a pie baking business rather than a body shop? If you are a baker of pies, it's easy for you to decide to open up a pie baking business. But that's just the point. If you are a baker of pies and are determined to do entrepreneurial work, you would leave your pie baking experience behind you and engage in the internal dialogue with which every truly entrepreneurial personality is wonderfully familiar. You would begin to say to yourself, it's time for me to create a new life. It's time for me to challenge my imagination and to begin the process of shaping an entirely new life. And the best way to do that anywhere in this whole wide opportunity-filled world is to create an exciting new business. One that can give me everything that I want, one that doesn't require me to be there all the time, one that has the potential to be stunningly unique, one that people will talk about long after having shopped in it the very first time, and, as a result of that delightful experience, will come back to shop there again because it has such a special flavor to it. I wonder what that business would be, I wonder what that business would be. I said to Sarah, is the truly entrepreneurial question. The dreaming question, I call it. It's the question that is at the heart of the work of an entrepreneur. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder. So the work of an entrepreneur is to wonder. I continued. To imagine and to dream. To see with as much of herself as she can muster the possibilities that waft about in midair someplace there above her head and within her heart. Not in the past but in the future. That's the work the entrepreneurial personality does at the outset of her business and at each and every stage along the way. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder. Just as every inventor must. Just as every composer must. Just as every artist, or every craftsperson, or every physicist must. Just as every baker of pies must. I call it future work. I wonder, is the true work of the entrepreneurial personality. She tried to repress it, but I saw a small smile begin to form on Sarah's mouth. How could I do this differently, she finally asked me with growing confidence. If I were to give the true entrepreneur in myself life, how could I totally change my experience of this business, now you've got it. I said. That's just the right question. And to get to the answer, let's look at where your business exists today in the small business life cycle. Infancy, the technician's phase. My uncle Sol had a skunk farm but the skunks caught cold and died and so my uncle Sol imitated the skunks in a subtle manner, e. e. Cummings. Collected poems. It is self-evident that business, like people, are supposed to grow, and with growth, comes change. Unfortunately, most businesses are not run according to this principle. Instead most businesses are operated according to what the owner wants as opposed to what the business needs. And what the technician who runs the company wants is not growth or change but exactly the opposite. He wants a place to go to work, free to do what he wants, when he wants, free from the constraints of work unfortunately, what the technician wants dooms his business before it even begins. To understand why, let's take a look at the three phases of a business's growth, infancy, adolescence, and maturity. Understanding each phase, and what goes on in the business owner's mind during each of them, is critical to discovering why most small businesses don't thrive and ensuring that yours does. The boss is dead, and you, the technician, are free at last. Finally, you can do your own thing in your own business. Hope runs high. The air is electric with possibility. It's like being let out of school for the summer. Your newfound freedom is intoxicating.
In the beginning nothing is too much for your business to ask. As the technician, you're accustomed to paying your dues. So the hours devoted to the business during infancy are not spent grudgingly but optimistically, there's work to be done, and that's what you're all about. After all, your middle name is work. Besides, you think, this work is for me. And so you work. 10, 12, 14 hours a day. 7 days a week. Even when you're at home, you're at work. All your thoughts, all your feelings, revolve around your new business. You can't get it out of your mind. You're consumed by it, totally invested in doing whatever is necessary to keep it alive. But now you're doing not only the work you know how to do but the work you don't know how to do as well. You're not only making it but you're also buying it, selling it, and shipping it. During infancy, you're a master juggler, keeping all the balls in the air. It's easy to spot a business in infancy, the owner and the business are one and the same thing. If you remove the owner from an infancy business, there would be no business left. It would disappear. In infancy, you are the business. It's even named after you, Joe's Place, Tommy's Joint, Mary's Fine Foods, so the customer won't forget you're the boss. And soon, if you're lucky, all of the sweat, worry, and work begin to pay off. You're good. You work hard. The customers don't forget. They're coming back. They're sending in friends. Their friends have friends. And they're all talking about Joe, Tommy, and Mary. They're all talking about you. If you can believe what your customers are saying, there's never been anyone like Joe, Tommy, and Mary. Joe, Tommy, and Mary are just like old friends. They work hard for their money. And they do good work. Joe is the best barber I ever went to. Tommy is the best printer I ever used. Mary makes the best corned beef sandwich I ever ate. Your customers are crazy about you. They keep coming, in droves. And you love it. But then it changes. Subtly at first, but gradually it becomes obvious. You're falling behind. There's more work to do than you can possibly get done. The customers are relentless. They want you, they need you. You've spoiled them for anyone else. You're working at breakneck speed. And then the inevitable happens. You, the master juggler, begin to drop some of the balls. It can't be helped. No matter how hard you try, you simply can't catch them all. Your enthusiasm for working with the customers wanes. Deliveries, once early, are now late. The product begins to show the wear and tear. Nothing seems to work the way it did at first. Joe's haircuts don't look the way they used to. I said short in the back, not on the sides, my name's not Fred, that's my brother, and I never had a crew cut. Glitches start showing up in Tommy's printing, typos, ink smudges, wrong colors, wrong paper. I didn't order business cards, I ordered catalog covers, pink. I said brown. Mary's best tasting biggest stack of corned beef in the world suddenly looks like pastrami. It is pastrami. Didn't you ask for pastrami? Another irritated voice calls out, where's my pastrami sandwich? This is corned beef. And yet another, what are these garbanzo beans doing in my meatloaf? What do you do? You stretch. You work harder. You put in more time, more energy. If you put in 12 hours before, you now put in 14. If you put in 14 hours before, you now put in 16. If you put in 16 hours before, you now put in 20. But the balls keep dropping. All of a sudden, Joe, Tommy, and Mary wish their names weren't on the sign. All of a sudden, they want to hide. All of a sudden, you find yourself at the end of an unbelievably hectic week, late on a Saturday night, poring over the books, trying to make some sense out of the mess, thinking about all of the work you didn't get done this week, and all of the work waiting for you next week. And you suddenly realize it simply isn't going to get done. There's simply no way in the world you can do all that work yourself. In a flash, you realize that your business has become the boss you thought you left behind. 
There's no getting rid of the boss. Infancy ends when the owner realizes that the business cannot continue to run the way it has been, that, in order for it to survive, it will have to change. When that happens, when the reality sinks in, most business failures occur. When that happens, most of the technicians lock their doors behind them and walk away. The rest go on to adolescence. Sarah was beginning to look defeated again. I had seen that look before on the faces of countless clients. When a technician turned business owner is suddenly confronted with the reality of her situation, a sense of hopelessness can set in. The challenge can seem overwhelming. But, I sensed that Sarah would struggle with the idea, and herself, until she got it. I guess I still don't get it, she said. What's wrong with being a technician? I used to love the work I do. And if I didn't have to do all these other things, I would still love it. Of course you would. I answered. And that's exactly the point. There's nothing wrong with being a technician, there's only something wrong with being a technician who also owns a business. Because as a technician turned business owner, your focus is upside down. You see the world from the bottom up rather than from the top down. You have a tactical view rather than a strategic view. You see the work that has to get done, and because of the way you're built, you immediately jump in to do it. You believe that a business is nothing more than an aggregate of the various types of work done in it, when in fact it is much more than that. If you want to work in a business, get a job in somebody else's business. But don't go to work in your own. Because while you're working, while you're answering the telephone, while you're baking pies, while you're cleaning the windows and the floors, while you're doing it, doing it, doing it, there's something much more important that isn't getting done. And it's the work you're not doing, the strategic work, the entrepreneurial work, that will lead your business forward, that will give you the life you've not yet known. No, I said, truly enjoying this, there's nothing wrong with technical work, it is, it can be, pure joy. It's only a problem when the technician consumes all the other personalities. When the technician fills your day with work. When the technician avoids the challenge of learning how to grow a business. When the technician shrinks from the entrepreneurial role so necessary to the lifeblood, the momentum, of a truly extraordinary small business, and from the managerial role so critical to the operational balance or grounding of a small business on a day-to-day -day basis. To be a great technician is simply insufficient to the task of building a great small business. Being consumed by the tactical work of the business, as every technician suffering from an entrepreneurial seizure is, leads to only one thing, a complicated, frustrating, and, eventually, demeaning job. I know you know what that feels like, Sarah. Can you see that as long as you view your business from the technician's perspective, you are doomed to continue having this experience? I asked her as gently as I could. I saw that Sarah was still struggling with the idea of doing what she does differently. I waited for the question I knew was brewing, and it wasn't long before it came. But I can't even imagine what my business would be like without me doing the work, she said. It has always depended on me. If it weren't for me, my customers would go someplace else. I'm not sure I understand what's really wrong with that. Well, think about it, I said. In a business that depends on you, on your style, on your personality, on your presence, on your talent and willingness to do the work, if you're not there why of course your customers would go someplace else. Wouldn't you? Because in a business like that what your customers are buying is not your business's ability to give them what they want but your ability to give them what they want. And that's what's wrong with it. What if you don't want to be there? What if you'd like to be someplace else? On a vacation, or at home, reading a book, working in the garden, or on a sabbatical, for God's sake. Isn't there any place you would rather be at times than in your business, filling the needs of your customers who need you so badly because you're the only one who can do it? What if you're sick, or feel like being sick? Or what if you just feel lazy? Don't you see? 
If your business depends on you, you don't own a business, you have a job. And it's the worst job in the world because you're working for a lunatic. And, besides, that's not the purpose of going into business. The purpose of going into business is to get free of a job so you can create jobs for other people. The purpose of going into business is to expand beyond your existing horizons. So you can invent something that satisfies a need in the marketplace that has never been satisfied before. So you can live an expanded, stimulating new life, Sarah said, I hate to beat a dead horse, but what if I want to do the technical work in my business? What if I don't want to do anything else but that? Then for God's sake, I said as emphatically as I dared, get rid of your business. And get rid of it as quickly as you can. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't have your pie and eat it too, you can't ignore the financial accountabilities, the marketing accountabilities, the sales and administrative accountabilities. You can't ignore your future employees' need for leadership, for purpose, for responsible management, for effective communication, for something more than just a job in which their sole purpose is to support you doing your job. Let alone what your business needs from you if it's to thrive, that you understand the way a business works, that you understand the dynamics of a business, cash flow, growth, customer sensitivity, competitive sensitivity, and so forth. The point is, I said to her, Watching her face sink and then begin to lift with an unexpressed question, if all you want from a business of your own is the opportunity to do what you did before you started your business, get paid more for it, and have more freedom to come and go, your greed, I know that sounds harsh, but that's what it is, your self-indulgence will eventually consume both you and your business. I paused and then continued because I could see that Sarah was not yet totally convinced. You just can't get there from here. You just can't play the role of the technician and ignore the roles of the entrepreneur and the manager simply because you're unprepared to play them. Because, the moment you chose to start a small business, Sarah, you unwittingly chose to play a significantly larger game than any game you had ever played before. And to play this new game, called building a small business that actually works, your entrepreneur needs to be coaxed out, nourished, and given the room she needs to expand, and your manager needs to be supported as well so she can develop her skill at creating order and translating the entrepreneurial vision into actions that can be efficiently manifested in the real world. Anything less than that will eventually push you to the brink of disaster and, finally, over the edge. Because a small business simply demands that we do it or the business will shrivel on the vine. So whether we like it or not, we have to learn how. The exciting thing is, that once you begin to, once your technician begins to let go, once you make room for the rest of you to flourish, the game becomes more rewarding than you can possibly imagine at this point in your business's life, tell me more about that, Sarah said. I really want to know. I will. I answered. Although I sense that you already understand quite a bit more than you think. But first, let's go on to adolescence, the second stage in a small business's growth. Adolescence, getting some help. As governments, we stumble from crisis to crash program, lurching into the future without plan, without hope, without vision. Alvin Toffler. The third wave. Adolescence begins at the point in the life of your business when you decide to get some help, there's no telling how soon this will happen. But it always happens, precipitated by a crisis in the infancy stage. Every business that lasts must grow into the adolescent phase. Every small business owner who survives seeks help. What kind of help do you, the overloaded technician, go out to get? The answer is as easy as it is inevitable, technical help. Someone with experience. Someone with experience in your kind of business. Someone who knows how to do the technical work that isn't getting done, usually the work you don't like to do. The sales-oriented owner goes out to find a production person. The production-oriented owner looks for a salesperson. 
and just about everybody tries to find someone to do the books. Because if there's anything most small business owners hate to do, and therefore ignore, it's the books. And so it is that you bring in your first employee, Harry, a 68-year-old bookkeeper who's been doing the books since he was 12 years old, in the old country. Harry knows the books. He knows how to do the books in eight different languages. But most important, Harry has 22 years of experience doing the books in a company just like yours. There is nothing Harry doesn't know about your kind of business. And now he's yours. The world suddenly looks brighter again. A major ball is about to be caught, and by somebody else for a change. It's Monday morning. Harry arrives. You greet him warmly, and, let's face it, feverishly. You've spent all weekend getting ready for this moment. You cleared out a generous space for him. You arranged the books and the stack of unopened letters on his desk. You bought a coffee cup with Harry printed on it. You were even thoughtful enough to find a cushion for his chair. He'll be sitting for a long time. There's a critical moment in every business when the owner hires his very first employee to do the work he doesn't know how to do himself or doesn't want to do. In your business, Harry is that person. And this Monday morning is that critical time. Think about it. You've taken a big step. The books are on Harry's desk now rather than yours. And what's more, Harry is about to become the only other person in the whole world who knows the real story about you and your business. Harry is going to take one look at the books and know the truth. Harry, your very first and most important employee, is about to find out a secret you've been hiding from everyone else in your life, that you don't know what you're doing. The question is, what's he going to do about it? Will he laugh? Will he cry? Will he leave? Or will he go to work? And if Harry won't do the books, who will? But suddenly you hear the quiet, systematic clattering of the calculator's keys from Harry's desk. He's working. Harry's going to stay. You can't believe your luck. You're not going to have to do the books anymore. And in a single stroke, you suddenly understand what it means to be in business in a way you never understood before. I don't have to do that anymore. At last you're free. The manager in you wakes up and the technician temporarily goes to sleep. Your worries are over. Someone else is going to do that now. But at the same time, unaccustomed as you are to being the manager, your newfound freedom takes on an all-too-common form. It's called management by abdication rather than by delegation. In short, like every small business owner has done before you, you hand the books over to Harry, Dot and Run. And for a while you are free. At least relatively so. After all, you still have all the other work to do. But now that you have Harry, things are beginning to change. Because when Harry's not totally immersed in the books, you can get him to answer the phone. And when he's not answering the phone, you can get him to do a little shipping and receiving. And when he's not doing the shipping and receiving, he might as well handle a few of your customers. And when he's not handling a few of your customers, well, who knows what you could think of next. Life becomes easier. Life becomes a dream. You begin to take a little longer lunch, 30 minutes instead of 15. You leave a little earlier at the end of the day, 8 o'clock instead of 9. Harry comes to you occasionally to tell you what he needs, and you, busy as usual, simply tell him to handle it. How doesn't matter as long as he doesn't bother you with the details. You've got other fish to fry. Harry needs more people. The business is beginning to grow. Busy as usual, you tell him to hire them. He does. Harry's a wonder. It's great to have a guy like Harry.